Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. People lately aren't just starting vegetable and flower gardens as a way to help them get through this coronavirus pandemic. They're getting chickens, too. There's been a big demand for baby chicks for a while now. People want to have more available form of protein, just in case that much-talked-about meat shortage comes about. But what do you know about picking out and raising baby chicks? Well, we're going to bring on an urban chicken consultant, that's a real thing, to fill you in on baby chick basics. Also, we have tips to ease your weeding chores, tools and techniques that make weeding less time-consuming. Also, we talk about one of the best plants to grow for cut flowers, and it's one that attracts a lot of interest from the garden good guys, the bees, the hummingbirds, and the pollinators. Plus, we help make your garden a more relaxing place with plants that are a show for the nose and the ears. What? Yeah, it's all on this edition of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, and we're going to do it all in less than 30 minutes. Let's get started. Where are the eggs? Well, retail demand has spiked in recent weeks as consumers stock up on eggs during the coronavirus-induced stay-at-home orders. National egg supplies are about a quarter below year-ago levels and at their lowest in several years. People are buying eggs, and you know what else they're doing? Oh, if they can't buy eggs, they're getting chicks. What do they do? Let's go to the expert. Urban chicken (laughs) consultant Cherie Sintis-Glover of the website chickensforeggs.com. And Cherie, for those who don't know, establish your credentials. You are a credentialed chicken person. (laughs) I am. Um, I am certified by um, uh, CDFA for, I am a poultry health inspector for the California Fairs and Expos. And I've been a 4-H poultry leader for more than 20 years. Um, And I teach chicken classes. Basically, I... I um, help people with um, all the basics as well as some more tricky things having to do with chicken raising because chicken keeping is a popular thing, especially right now. Yeah, especially right now. You got that right. And (laughs) with people panic buying chicks, I can imagine they may be just scooping up whatever chicks they find and not realizing uh, they may not have wanted to pick that one. And you Mm -hmm. might you might want to expound upon that. Oh, absolutely. So there, there's definitely a chick frenzy happening at the moment. Um, people are scooping up chicks left, right, and center. And the feed stores know it. I think all of the different outlets where you can buy chicks and the hatcheries know it. So they are producing like crazy. And so it's been, it's been very interesting. I've already gotten lots of calls and emails about uh, what to do with these chicks that they brought home. And how can one tell when one's looking at a box full of Uh, little furry yellow cheapers which one is a laying hen and which one is a rooster well you know luckily the feed stores for the most part they will separate them out they'll either have a um a big bin of chicks that are um are pullets so you want to look for the sign that says pullets because that means that more than likely those chicks are going to be females so they're going to lay the eggs for you if you see like a standard run um or straight run is what they call it um then you know that that going to be a mixture bin that means that you're going to have maybe a 50 50 chance of getting a male or a female although a lot of people say they end up with a lot of males so so aim for the pullet the other thing to look for is you want to look for the chicks that are active that are alert that are bright you also want to kind of take a look at their tush 
uh, and see if there's anything kind of stuck on there. Um, many times chicks, if they're in a stress situation or they're too hot or too cold, they'll develop something called pasty butt. And that's when um, their droppings don't completely drop to the, the shavings or the floor. Um, and you definitely want a chick that is healthy and that doesn't have anything stuck to its little tush. All right, you found the right chicks. You've taken them home. Now what? Well, hopefully, hopefully you've already gotten your brooder pen already set up before going to the feed store, which I know doesn't always happen, but it's, it's just like if you're bringing home a new puppy or a new kitten, you want to have everything set up and already ready to go by the time that chick gets home. Um, so you're going to make sure that it's warm, you have a heat lamp. Um, a really a, The easiest way to set up a brooder is to use one of those plastic clear storage bins that you might have laying around the house. It has enclosed sides, you can, it has an open top, so you can kind of control the heat um, and you should have it set up with a heat lamp so that it's just the right temperature. Um, another important thing to consider is the bedding, right? What kind of floor do you want to have in that little brooder? Do not use newspaper. Um, if at all humanly possible, do not use newspaper. The reason for this is that the floor is very slick on newspaper, the surface, and that can cause um, sprawl leg and other leg conditions in chicks. So really the best thing to use is actually paper towels which I know might be hard for a lot of people to get right now. <laughs> but if you have an extra roll of paper towels, use that as the, as the bedding or to cover the surface floor of the brooder. Um, another option is to use very finely ground um, shavings, but very, very few. And that's because the chicken, little baby chicks tend to eat up the, the shavings, which can clog them up a little bit as well. How many layers of paper towels do you need to have on the bottom of that for the chicks? Maybe just one to two layers, not too much. What you can do is you can add a layer on top. When you add more, you don't have to take it out each time. Um, and I usually will do that two, uh, three or four times before I actually roll up the whole floor of paper towels and then put a fresh, you know, brand new layer on there. So it, it takes a little while. Luckily, a, a chick's, chick's poop isn't too big. Now, you mentioned heat lamps earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. Chicks need to stay warm. What is their ideal temperature range and how long do you need to use that heat lamp? Oh, yes. Yeah. So usually we aim for about 95 degrees. And the best way um, to kind of guesstimate or, or figure out what the best temperature is, is really to watch those chicks. Those chicks are going to tell you by their movements if they are too warm or if they're too cool. If you see the chicks all huddled underneath that heat lamp, um, you're going to want to lower it because that's going to get the heat a little bit closer to them. If you go in and you look at your baby chicks and they are in every far corner of the bin, and they want to get as far away from that heat lamp as possible. That means they're way too hot. And in that case, you want to raise that heat lamp up to allow some of the heat to kind of dissipate and, and give them more space. You really want them to be just wandering and happily chirping and pecking and doing their normal little thing. So I just watch the chicks. That'll tell you. I would think one of their normal things to do would be to eat. What do you feed chicks? Oh, so it's really important to feed them a great chick starter. And those are usually higher proteins. So 20%, 22%, somewhere around there. It'll be fine granules and you'll specifically want to get chick starter. Um, and I, what I typically use is an old mayonnaise jar lid. I find that it's perfect because it's not too deep. It um, allows them to pick through it and kind of, you know, scratch in there as well. Um, and it's easily... You know, clean. You know, you can clean it easily. You can you can refill it pretty easily. The other thing is the waterer. 
Um, people often make the mistake of using a huge waterer or one that has um, a large outer lip. And what happens with that is sometimes the chicks can drown in the water water dish. So you want to make sure that you put some clean pebbles or some clean marbles, something in there, um, in the actual reservoir portion to kind of limit how deep they get in that water dish. You're still going to have to show the chicks where the water is when you introduce them to their new home, right, to the brooder. And that means you're bringing them over, you're going to dip their beak in the water, let them kind of sit for a second and, you know, swallow, take a drink. They'll figure that out. Um, but I just find that the, the feed store chick waterers work the best. And at some point, they're going to outgrow this nice little container and uh, need more room. When does that happen? They, they are. So so chicks, most breeds of chicks will start to feather out, uh, which means because, you know, they're all fluffy in the beginning. So they'll start to grow their, their um, adult feathers, usually between two and three months. Some breeds take a little bit longer. But once they're fully feathered, which could be four months long, um, they that's when they're ready to, to move into their outdoor coop, especially this time of year, because we know that it'll be in a couple months. The weather will be good. It won't be too cold outside. So it's really good timing. They're going to grow and you're going to want to watch that space and then maybe even have a transitional coop. So that means that they're in this little chick brooder, maybe in two months, they're then moved to a larger box, maybe out in the garage or into another larger space. There's it's a good idea to do that if you're not quite ready with your coop. Um, and if you haven't gotten your coop built already, I would definitely start planning that at least by the day that you bring the chick home. And if you're at all handy, try to build one yourself if you can. Um, I always prefer um, or recommend that people use hardwire cloth if they build their own versus chicken wire. Because even though chicken wire is called chicken wire, it typically is not predator proof. Yeah, that's the whole idea is is to keep the bad guys out. And hardware cloth, mm-hmm. I believe, is quarter inch mesh, and and and, it it's, and it's a heavy duty cloth too. So I could see how that could be secure. Yes, I would imagine you have links to a lot of this information at your website, chickensforeggs.com. You know, there's there is some information on there, but what I'm gearing up to do is a series of webinars or Zoom or video conference classes. Um, with the with everything kind of changing, the dynamics of our environment right now, it's making it really difficult to have in-person classes, as you can imagine. So we're switching gears and we're actually going to do a series of online or video conferencing type classes. I would imagine those webinars will then be available afterwards for people who may not be able to make it at the time it's originally done. Yes. Um, and we can do video conferencing with folks that want to do individual consultations. Often what I'll what I'll get contacted about is someone's not sure where to put the coop or what breeds to take a purchase or just they want to know the basics. So they'll actually arrange for a private consultation where normally I would come out to their home and we do the consultation in person. Um, but these days, luckily, thanks to all of our technology, we can actually do that from the comforts of our own homes. <laughs> so it's a great option. FaceTiming for eggs. Yes. <laughs> the fact that they're they're buying up chicks like crazy and, and then they've got to figure out what to do with them. So that's what I'm here to help with. If people want more information about raising backyard chickens for the eggs, I imagine uh, you must know a couple of good books on the subject. Oh, absolutely. There are two of my most favorite books on chicken keeping are The Story's Guide to Raising Chickens. It's by Gail Damaro, and they've done a couple of versions over the years, but fantastic books. That's a good one to just hang on to no matter what. The other one is called City Chicks, and it's by Patricia Foreman. Um, and it's specifically geared towards people who 
are also gardeners. So it's a great book. Lots of great information can be found at chickensforeggs.com. That's the website for Cherie Sintas Glover. Cherie, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Oh, you're super welcome, Fred. Thank you so much for having me on. And, and I want to wish everyone great luck with their chicks. And be sure to reach out if they have any questions. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we want to answer your garden questions. A couple of ways you can do that. Give us a call, 916-292-8964. That number again, 916-292-8964. You can either leave a message or you can text that number as well. Be patient. There are a lot of rings before we pick up. Another way is email. Send your garden questions to fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. One benefit of email is you can attach a photo of a bug or a plant that you're trying to identify. We're looking forward to hearing and seeing your questions. And thanks for listening to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. I appreciate all your support and all your comments. We like to answer your questions here on the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You just found out how you can uh, submit your questions. We like to bring in Debbie Flower to help answer these toughies. Debbie Flower, retired college horticultural professor. And Debbie, we've been getting a lot of questions over on the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Some of them require some thought. Like Victoria writes in and says, how do you weed efficiently if you're a 72-year-old retired widow? Wow, maybe we'll just wait and find out. What do you think, Fred? (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. It's something I actually do think about because I love being in my garden and I'm not a 72-year-old widow and I don't know if I'll, I hope I'll get to be 72 and I I don't know that I'll be a widow, but um, as I'm out in the garden working, I I do think about how am I going to do this as I age in my body you know, isn't as uh, capable as it once was. So this is something that a retired widow might, might be considering, is how to, much so. how to weed efficiently. And for, and for that matter, we all want to weed efficiently. They're not yeah. going to go yeah. away. So it's a matter of controlling it. It is a matter of controlling it. And so uh, if we started with a clean piece of land and no weeds, the first thing I would do is mulch. I like to use the uh, chips from an arborist. Uh, that's, so that's a tree. It's it's the bark and the leaves and the uh, interior wood part of the tree, uh, and put it down thickly. Thickly being at least four inches, and that will uh, keep the seed. The seeds don't go away. The weed seeds are in the soil and they don't go away. They will germinate. In fact, under the mulch, but. They have only so much food in their seed, and they need that food to get the stem and leaves up through the mulch and expose it to the sun so the plant can make its own food. If you put the mulch on deep enough, they never emerge from that pile of mulch, and so they don't grow. That's one way to prevent them. But if they're already there, then... Uh, weeding needs to be done when is most efficiently done when the weeds are very tiny plants when they have just germinated. So that means you need to go out really often and and walk through the landscape. I try to do it every day and find those areas of the landscape where the weeds are germinating. Bending over might be a challenge, and if it is for for this person, then um, a hula hoe. Mm-hmm. That's a brand. It's actually a reciprocating hoe. So a hoe is a tool on the end of a a long like broomstick and 
The reciprocating hoe is the shape of a sort of a flattened circle. It's more of a a rectangle or square than it is a circle. And it's open in the middle and it has sharp blades at the soil level and it moves back and forth. That's the reciprocating part. So as you put the hoe on the ground and slide it back and forth, it actually cuts the, the weeds at the soil level. It only works on very young weeds. And the advantage is it doesn't dig up more weeds. Uh, If you pull weeds out and get a whole bunch of soil out of the ground with them, yay, that weed is gone, but you have just disturbed the soil and brought up seeds that have been buried and would not germinate, except that now you expose them to air and sun and good temperatures, and, and they probably will germinate. So the advantage of hoeing your weeds away, and I prefer a reciprocating hoe, although other hoes can be used, hoes that don't have that open hollow center and don't reciprocate, meaning they don't move back and forth, and cut off those baby weeds at the soil level. For someone who can't bend over, I think is the most efficient way. I have this really nice, lightweight, aluminum hoeing device that I use, and it has a triangular head, a very sharp point at one end, and a flat side on the back, sort of like a, a perfect triangle. But it's uh-huh. very, but it's very sharp. So you can either use the sharp end to really get close to it, or you could use that flat end and just swoop at it at ground level to cut it off. And it really does a good job. Yes, lightweight matters. As we age, uh, our strength diminishes. So lightweight matters and and the sharpness matters. And tools need to be kept sharp. Uh, Shovels can be sharpened. Hose can be sharpened. uh, And so that is something to make sure that you do with your tools. That will aid your uh, efficiency in weeding. And when the weeds pop up, then uh, take that hoe, the uh, hula hoe, or some sort of sharpened edge hoe, and cut it off at the surface level. Eventually, it'll run out of steam and not come back. The weed. The weed. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. a 72 year old widow runs out of steam, too, I would think. <laughs> well, I thought maybe the hoe would, too. <laughs> yeah, that's there a possibility. Are many other, many other things you, that you, you can purchase to help you uh, with, with weeding. They're, they're, if the arthritis is starting to get to your hands, and um, many of us who have used our hands all our life to do this wonderful gardening may experience that. There are grips. You can get foam grips to go on the tools that make them easier to handle. There are uh, garden benches. If getting down onto the ground is uh, not doable anymore, there are garden benches. Some are on wheels, some are not. Uh, They can be flipped over and and you can be close to the ground or you can sit on them at, at a sitting height. Um, You could do a raised bed, which means the weeds are closer to where you are. Or if you put a wide uh, edge to that raised bed, you can sit on it and pull the weeds from there. Um, So there are lots of ways to spend money to make it easier. But I think if if the first thing I would get is, is that hoe. I would advise her to pay her grandson to pull them. Right. Or the, the child up the street. Yes. Yes, just to get them out of the ground first and then do the mulching trick. And it really works. And even if weed seeds uh, fly in from someplace else and uh, germinate in the mulch, they come up really easy. Yes, that's very true. They do come up very easily. Yes. 
But again, uh, thickly mulching is is a great way to go to control weeds. I've done that in my yard uh, for the last uh, four years now, and it really does not only does it cut down weeding, but especially those arborist chips uh, do a great job of breaking down and feeding the soil. And I've been digging in that area today and. I'm amazed at the earthworm activity that is there now that wasn't there four years ago. Yes, yes, it is wonderful stuff for the soil, and it will reduce your need for for fertilizer in the landscape. Absolutely, so you're saving money there. Uh, I actually did have one. I've had used mulch in my property for many years as well, and and uh, a company I'd never heard of or dealt with before brought me a load of mulch and actually offered that some of his crew could come and spread the mulch if I wanted that. I didn't take him up on that, but that's something to consider if you're getting mulch from an arborist company. Exactly. Yeah. If you uh, have ever done any business with a tree company, uh, give them a call, tell them that you're a customer. And if they ever have crews in the neighborhood to uh, drop off uh, the load so they don't have to take it to the landfill. Right. It saves them money and time, and time is also money. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win situation here. And sometimes leaving behind a six-pack of beer helps, too. Right. Beer, water, whatever. Pop. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right. There, we solved the weed problems. Debbie Flower, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Fred. Looking for a long-lasting cut flower? You might want to try the Alstroemeria. It's also known as the Peruvian lily. This may be the queen of cut flowers. The flower, which comes in many colors and resembles a miniature lily, is very popular for bouquets and flower arrangements, especially at your local florist. The cut flower will last for two weeks. Alstroemeria's the Peruvian lily also attracts many garden good guys, including bees, birds, beneficial insects, and hummingbirds, and it does well in containers. Most Peruvian lilies available for the home garden get about two to three feet tall, and because they start off as bulbs, those bulbs will multiply. In mild climates, the plant will spread. Peruvian lilies will bloom in late spring and early summer. The roots are hardy, down to about a temperature of 23 degrees or so, so that means they're suitable for USDA zones 6 through 10. The plant requires at least 6 hours of morning light, regular water, and well-drained soil. The trick, though, is how to harvest the Alstroemeria flowers. With that information, here's Warren Roberts. He's the Superintendent Emeritus of the University of California Davis Arboretum. Alstroemeria is sometimes called Inca lily or Peru lily. Although they're really from the main one, the main source of the varieties and species is Chile. But somehow the, the, the name Chile Lily has caught on. <laughs> but that would be the more appropriate name. Great uh, cut flower, but you don't cut them, you pull them. And, and then you, uh, that, that's one of the longest lasting of all these flowers. Hmm. And one more tip if you're shopping at a nursery for the Alstroemeria, the Peruvian lily, only buy one container. First of all, they're not that cheap. They can sell anywhere from 15 to $25 for a one-gallon container. But trust me, when you plant it, it will spread. In fact, when you take it out of the pot that it came in from the nursery, you'll see all sorts of bulbs, and you can separate those out by 12 inches or so, and that area will fill in. Finally, during these, shall we say, uncertain times... Let the garden be your natural Valium. 
a place for you to go to relax, enjoy, and smile. An oasis filled with tasty treats and eye-catching flowers. But don't ignore making your other senses happy as well. And I mean your nose and your ears. Really? A show for the nose? Well, let's talk about that. The familiar aroma of a fragrant flower or a crushed leaf of a fragrant plant can transport you back in time. It's an instant vacation to your happy place. Put those fragrant plants where you will enjoy them the most, maybe right outside your front door or your backyard patio. I'm sure you're familiar with fragrant roses, and among the fragrant roses, try the David Austin line of roses. Many of you may have gardenias with their perfume-like aroma every spring and summer. Well, here are some shows for the nose you may not be aware of. All of these will do well here in California, and if you have a mild climate where you live, I bet many of these will do well there, too. Star Jasmine. It's not a true jasmine, but it's a popular evergreen twining vine. It's most noted for the fragrance of its small white flowers in the spring. It can be used against a trellis or as a spreading ground cover. It does well with afternoon shade and regular water, and star jasmine are very attractive to bees. Now, just to make sure there is no confusion, the botanical name for star jasmine is a real tongue twister, Trachylospermum. I can't even say it, Trachylospermum jasminoides. I'll say that again, because <laughs> it's fun. Trachylospermum jasminoides. One of my favorite shows for the nose is the banana shrub. Now, I'm not talking about a banana plant that grows something you peel and eat. The banana shrub is actually in the magnolia family. It's a, The botanical name is Magnolia figo. It's an evergreen shrub. It has small yet very fragrant pink or cream-colored flowers during mid-spring. And why is it called a banana shrub? Well, one whiff, and you just might be reminded of the aroma of juicy fruit gum, which has kind of a banana scent to it. One of my favorite plants for a shady area, especially right outside a door, is winter Daphne, Daphne odora. This evergreen shrub solves two vexing garden problems. It's a plant that thrives in full shade, and it produces fragrant blooms in the dead of winter. Winter Daphne, it'll do well in milder areas of the west and the south. A plant that does well anywhere is tuberose. The blooms of this perennial tuber, which is a native of Mexico, will fill your backyard with a heady scent during summer evenings. It has grass-like leaves that can get to three feet tall, but the white tubular flowers, which are clustered at the top, have this delightful aroma. It's a good choice for containers, so you can move it indoors if it gets too cold and then set it back out when the weather gets warmer. The tuberose needs regular water to look its best. Another one with a name that describes it all, Sweetbox. It's an evergreen shrub for shady areas. Sweetbox is at its most fragrant during late winter and early spring. And the botanical name for Sweetbox is Sarcococa. There's plenty more shows for the nose I don't have time to talk about, like Winter Sweet, White Evening Primrose, Flowering Tobacco, or Sweet Olive. But don't forget the evergreen shrubs and herbs that can provide an enticing aroma when their leaves are crushed. And that includes Sweet Bay, Rosemary, and Cilantro. Now, what's this about a garden show for the ears? I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the buzzing of a bumblebee or a native bee or the quick wing flapping of hummingbirds, I get a big smile. And I bet you will, too. By the way, to attract native bees to your yard, just put in native plants. 
Among the general plants that bees like, the list includes catnip, oregano, cosmos, rosemary, lavender, sunflowers, bottle brush, and a lot more. Hummingbird attractive plants are everywhere. They love any plant with tubular-shaped flowers. My favorite right now is the flowering maple, the abutilon, which thrives in the warmer areas of most of the sunbelt states. Other hummingbird attractive plants include lavender, hibiscus, just about any variety of sage, bottle brush, the butterfly bush, citrus plants, the flowering crabapple tree, lantana, aloe vera, begonias, fuchsias, columbine, coral bells, daylilies, gladiolas, impatiens, hollyhock, the Peruvian lily, the alstroemeria, petunias, snapdragons, zinnias, trumpet vine, morning glory. Well, you get the idea. Hummingbirds like a lot of plants. More information and links about the garden plants that are a show for the nose and the ears is available in today's show description for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You better believe it. A garden is a treat for your eyes, but don't forget about pleasing your nose and ears, too, when you walk out into the yard. Say, be sure to leave a comment or rating of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with your garden friends. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. I appreciate you listening. Would you please subscribe? You can find the podcast at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Podcast Attic, and Hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Thank you. But um, as I'm out in the garden working, I, I do think about how am I going to do this as I age and my body, you know, isn't as uh, capable as it once was. Is that the difference between men and women? Is that you're out there thinking about what am I going to do <laughs> in 10 years? <laughs> well, I don't know. Men don't think about that stuff. They just take it a day at a time. Uh, basically, I mean, uh, it might go as far out as I wonder what baseball games on TV tonight. <laughs> Good luck with that right now. Yes, I know. I'm getting a lot done as a result.